This is DeRay Olalier, and you're listening to the Smooth Jazz, episode 44 of the Before the Millions podcast. Yeah, yeah. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7 Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the Cashflow Ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. But whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olalaye. What's going on, investors? Welcome to another week, another installment of the Before the Millions podcast. I'm excited this week, guys. I'm excited to present to you guys Mr. Kevin Buck. Now, Kevin is a popular podcaster who has not one, but two podcasts. He's a real estate investor. His niche, his specific niche is mobile home parks. And for a long time now, I've heard that mobile home parks are some of the best, safest, and soundest investments in the real estate world. Now, I like to think that I operate in the space of the best, safest, and soundest investment in the real estate world as far as small multifamily and larger commercial buildings uh, in the multifamily space, so apartment buildings. But I've heard that mobile home parks kind of have us beat. And uh, Kevin is going to explain to us exactly why he thinks mobile home parks are the way to go. Now, to be clear, you can make money in real estate with any business model. There are plenty of people who succeed in other business models and all the best to them. Kevin has experienced succeeding in some of these other business models. Kevin has been a successful single family investor. He's invested in multiple different asset classes. And when the 2008 crash came roaring down on his life, man, he lost everything, every single thing. He had to start from scratch, guys. It messed him up so bad that he took a break for a while from real estate and he started exploring different things. He started exploring hobbies. He started exploring other businesses. And lo and behold, a few years later, Once the economy kind of started picking back up, he got the itch again and he jumped right back into real estate investing. And this time he leveraged his experiences, his successes, his failures, and he learned how to be a better investor. He learned how to mitigate the risk of a downturn. And now he's a lifestyle entrepreneur. So there's a lot to be learned from this episode and I can't wait for us to kind of dive right into it. But first, we are hiring Yes, the Before the Millions company has open positions. So if you are interested in employment, how often do I talk about being employed somewhere on this show? But I mean, where rather you be employed if you're going to be employed anywhere than a show that's dedicated to lifestyle design. So if you're interested in working for the Before the Millions company, then visit beforethemillions.com slash hire. That's beforethemillions.com slash hire. 
Whew. Yeah, I need some help, guys. Things are getting crazy. So for the first part of the year, I'd say for the whole first quarter, for the first three months, I have been in Dallas. I felt that I was moving a whole last quarter and I needed to slow things down a little bit and just kind of get a grasp on everything. So this quarter, Q2 of 2018, I decided that I was just going to kind of hang out in Houston. So um, last week I was in LA and I decided that once I got to Texas from LA, I was going straight to Houston. I was going to be in Houston until like the end of July. Well, things happen, plans change, and I'm back from LA. I'm in Houston and I kind of have to go to Dallas. I'm interviewing a new property management company for a few of my units and I have a other miscellaneous business to have to tend to. So I'm headed right back to the city, guys. But in all honesty, I think that after April, I probably will not be in Dallas for the rest of the year. I think the next time I'll be in Dallas will be in December. And that's a stretch, especially with this new property management company. I don't see myself in Dallas. So if you're an investor and you're in Dallas, especially uh, in the month of April, I want to link up with you. I want to connect with you. So let's get coffee. Let's hang out. Let's do a meetup. Let's do something. Reach out to me and we can have some fun. Hey, also really quick. I know a lot of you guys have been asking about our Facebook group. You guys have been asking about some Q and A's and getting some of your questions answered. And, you know, I try to do the best that I can on this show, but since it's a podcast, I'm always talking at you guys. And in order for me to be able to interact with you guys, I decided to start doing Q and A's. Now, the method in which I'm delivering these Q and A's, again, this is all brand new, by the way. So this may not even last more than a few weeks. I just kind of want to test this and see, you know, if this is going to help some of you guys. So as I kind of test out the waters on Facebook Live and YouTube, this Thursday, I'm hosting a Q&A session and I would love for you to join me. We are talking about all things lending. So we're diving into your mortgage, the bank, the people that are going to partner with you to get your first deal done. We're talking and I'm going to bring uh, Steve Bighouse on. And if you, some of you guys may remember Steve from an early, early episode. So I'm going to bring him on and me and Steve are going to answer all of your questions about how to get your first loan, how to go about getting your first property once you have that pre-approval, once you have your first loan, what kind of credit score do you need? How big of a property can you purchase? How do you find your lender? I mean, things that you guys ask me all the time, we're going to answer them for you guys live. And the answer is going to be personal. They're going to be personable to your situation because you're asking the question. So it's going to be amazing. So Thursday, April 4th, if you're listening to this recording before Thursday, April 4th, then join us for our Q&A at 1pm CST Central Time. And we're going to answer all your lending questions. We're going to tell you exactly what you need to get started in real estate, because I mean, let's face it, lending, getting your money right is one of the first things that you're going to have to get right before you can invest in any type of property. So come to our Q&A, bring your questions, and we will get all of them answered. Now, the easiest place I know to host the Facebook Live would be in our Facebook group. And that's just because that's where we can congregate. That's where we, we have the community and that's where we're all together anyways on a weekly basis. So if you're not already a part of our Facebook group, that's where we're hosting the Q&A. That's where we're going to do this stuff live. Just visit beforethemillions.com slash group and it'll take you straight there. Join our Facebook group so that this Thursday and possibly every Thursday from here on out, 
You can get on a live Q&A with me most weeks. We'll probably have crazy fun and, and I'm sure it'll get out of hand. But when we have other guests on for other weeks, I'm sure it'll be more structured and you guys will get a lot of value out of those conversations as well. And we'll just kind of knock out as many questions as we can, guys. So that's the plan. And if you can't make it, no worries. Just go ahead and join the Facebook group so that you'll be active and present for the very next Q&A. I think that's all the announcements for today. So I'm excited. Let's get into the show. DeRay's tip of the week. It's more of a spiritual foundation around money. Now, people like to say money is the root of all evil or the Bible says money is the root of all evil. That's not true. In fact, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. And even that's not true. What the Bible actually says is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now that I believe to be true, that is a true statement. But what I also believe to be a true statement is the love of money is the root of all kinds of good. Said best by one of my mentors, Cliff Ravenscraft. I digress. One of my daily affirmations is that money can provide value to everyone if I allow it to flow through me. You know, they say when you hoard your money or when you have closed palms or when you're holding on to something tight, when you're saving, you're not able to receive because, I mean, your hands are tied up. It's not until you give, give of what you have to where you're open, you have space to receive now. Every once in a while, you have to remind yourself that you have to allow money to flow through you to benefit those around you. That's what it's for. As a business owner, as a capitalist, you're helping so many people by being successful. We talk about the number of people in poverty. Adding another person to that number is not going to help. So by doing your part and making sure that you're not below the poverty line, in fact, that you become a successful entrepreneur or business owner, that's one less person. But not only that, with your success comes the success of others. You know, as a real estate investor, you're able to provide shelter for people. You're able to provide jobs for people, jobs for real estate agents, jobs for contractors, jobs for attorneys, jobs for title companies. These people are feeding their families because of the business that you have. You're able to provide shelter for tenants, for residents. I like to call my tenants residents. I don't like to call them tenants. You're adding value to so many people. You're adding value to yourself, to your family. What about the guy who cut your grass? What about the waitress at your real estate meeting? What about the electric company? What about the person who's servicing your account? Your portion of of what's feeding them and their family? It gets so deep, guys. If you really think about where your money goes once it leaves your hand, the more successful you get, the more value you're able to add, the more impact you're able to have on this world. So if I were you, I'm sorry to say, but I'd be trying to get filthy rich because at the end of the day, all we're left with are the things that we've done for others, how we made other people feel, how we've been able to provide impact, how we've been able to make a difference in this world. And it's a lot easier to make a difference with money than without it. You know, Jesus talks about money in the Bible more than anything else and how we should be good stewards of our money. So let's allow it to flow. And as we give abundance, we receive abundance, whether that's a monetary value or not. There's always an equal opposite reaction for every single action. You may not notice it. You may not see it. It may not be immediately after. Those are the laws of physics, guys. I heard that it also says in the Bible that you reap what you sow. So it looks like science and religion were on the same page with that one. 
you know, our mindset is that we want to hold on to our money. We want to hoard it. We want to keep as much of it as we can. And the minute we start allowing it to flow to others, through us, to others, to benefit the world, that's when abundance starts flowing through us. That's when abundance starts flowing to us. And when I talk about abundance, I'm not talking about a monetary value. Abundance can be so much, so much joy, so much fulfillment. You know how much joy and fulfillment Steve Jobs was able to to amass when he allowed the abundance to flow through him? When Apple allowed the abundance to flow through them, Apple, Apple's number one mission is revenue driven. They care about the bottom line. They care about the money. Through that process, they've built a multi-billion dollar business. They've hired so many employees taking care of so many families. They've invented things that we haven't even been able to fathom in the last 100 years. They have a way for coders now through apps, through the creation of apps. They have a way for coders to become millionaires overnight. That's fulfillment. That is abundance. That is what you can do when you create a successful business. Another one of my affirmations I repeat to myself every morning, and a lot of Christians are going to have a problem with this one as well. Watch this. I am financially wealthy. However, it is not by my power or strength that has produced this wealth for me. It is God who has gifted me with the ability to produce wealth. Some thoughts after that would be, Duray, why do you think God wants you to be rich? He's not thinking about that. It has no bearing on his objective for our lives. Well, I disagree. For those of you who struggle with that from a faith perspective, I will tell you that that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 to 18. So if you have any problem with affirming that on a daily basis or knowing that to be true in your life and you are a believer like I am, well, there you have it. It's right there in the Bible for you guys to see in your own context. So I leave you with this because this is just the tip of the week and I can have seven episodes on this subject matter alone because I want every single one of you guys to know that wealth is out there waiting for you. It's in fact, your divine destiny to be wealthy and to pour into others. So my last point is this, money will not make you happy. Well, Dre, you just got done telling me that, no, I got done telling you that you shouldn't resent money and you shouldn't think as a Christian that you don't deserve to be wealthier. You're not supposed to be wealthier. That's not the Christian way. But at the same time, money will not make you happy. As James Wedmore would say, the secret to being happy is just being happy. If you're happy before the money, you'll be happy after the money. If you're not happy before the money, the money is not going to make you any happier. It's going to cause you to want more and more and more and never be satisfied. So be happy now. Be satisfied with where you are now. Be grateful with where you are now. Have goals, have dreams, have ambitions and work towards those. But be contented that you are in a position to create wealth for yourself and you have created wealth for yourself. If you're listening to this podcast, you are a human being. You know how many other animals there are on this world? You know what the percentages of humans there are compared to the rest of the species on this earth? And then of the human race, you're in the top 1%. You have a divine destiny. You have a divine calling. It's yours for the taking. Let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. Today, I'd like to welcome Kevin Buck to the show. Hey, Kevin, how's it going? I'm doing great, DeRay. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. 
Same here, no problem. Kevin is a Florida-based real estate investor. Your background is in real estate investing, but more specifically, mobile home parks. And I know that you invest in quite a few other real estate assets, but your specialty is mobile home parks. So hopefully we'll learn a little bit more about why you chose the specialty and how it's faring for you so far. But let's take it back right now, Kevin. Let's hop in the time machine. Let's learn a little bit more about younger Kevin and, and talk about your upbringing and kind of how you forged this path and why you forged this path. So let's maybe take it back to high school and college, Kevin. And what was your mindset back then? What were you doing and how did you, <laughs> how did you turn your ear to real estate? I don't know if I had a mindset in high school. I think that that was part of the problem, Duray. I, I mean, I didn't really, I wasn't a great student. I was a pretty poor student. I mean, I grew up a good blue collar family. My parents always provided for my brother and I. So I didn't have like, it wasn't like a rags to riches. I, we weren't poor. We also didn't have, you know, fancy cars or a huge mansion or anything like that. I mean, lived in a normal suburban neighborhood in central Pennsylvania. That's where I grew up. And so but school definitely was not one of my strong suits. I will tell you that. And I don't know why. I just didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy learning at that point in my life. I'm the complete opposite person today because I, I love education. I love, you know, continuing to build my brain up. But back then, that was not the case. It was quite the opposite. So I did very poor in high school. Didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I wasn't really thinking of being or becoming an adult. Like that just wasn't really a part of my daily thought process. And not to blame my parents, but I don't think that, that my parents didn't go to college and you know they, they were all both blue collar workers and they just didn't really instill that in my brother and I. And so I think we just kind of like, okay, well, we'll go to high school and that's it. After that, we get a job and figure life out. And so I just didn't do all that great. And after high school, I graduated, barely, barely graduated. I went to community college. I knew that if I went away to school, went away to university or college, I would have just wasted my parents' money and I probably would have been kicked out probably first semester. I'm sure I would have. And so I just, I got a job bartending and going to community college. I had a lot of fun, met a lot of cool people, just taking classes with no, still, still no direction whatsoever. At the age of 19, so my, my freshman year at, at community college, I got very, very lucky. I, I was dating a girl that her mother had recently gone through a divorce. She started dating a guy and uh, this, this guy was about 20, 20 or 25 five years older than I was at the time. And long story short, became friends with him, really uh, conjured up a relationship and found out what he did for a living. He was a entrepreneur, uh, but more so he was a real estate investor locally where I lived. He lived a pretty cool lifestyle, always had nice cars, dressed really nice, had a nice home and had a very flexible schedule. I'd see him during the day, I'd stop by my girlfriend's house in between classes and he'd be, you know, around, he'd be stopping by, you know, meeting uh, my girlfriend's mom for lunch and things like that. I'm like, shouldn't you be at work, man? Like, it's not what like adults do. They work nine to five. What are you doing here? Just came to find that like he had a lot of flexibility in his life and I thought it was pretty cool. And he must have seen a struggling teenager when he met me. I didn't realize I was a struggling teenager at that time, but uh, he, he must have seen a struggling teenager, or I guess young adult more so than a teenager. And he basically invited me and I had no interest in real estate whatsoever. I didn't even really understand what he did. I knew he owned properties, but I didn't know what that really meant. He invited me to a boot camp, a three-day boot camp down in Philadelphia that he had a ticket, he had an extra ticket to. It was a, a Ron Legrand boot camp who is still in this business teaching today, but how to fix and flip homes. And I was like, you know what? What the heck? Might as well go and check this thing out. He's paying for it. You know, it's here. It's free. He's a cool guy. He's been pretty successful. So let's see what this is all about. And I went to that three day boot camp. And I left there, Duray, with um, kind of a little bit of a vision, something I could grab onto. It was it was a feeling that I had never had in my entire life of 
wow, I think I might have some purpose. I don't know if this is exactly it, but this is something. And there were a lot of people that I met there at that three-day boot camp that were doing really well financially. They were excited. There was energy in the room. And I knew it was something that I was going to put some effort and focus into because I needed something at that point in my life and I just didn't know what it was. And so that was uh, at the age of 19. Fast forward, I basically followed uh, David, who was my mentor. This is the person that took me to this boot camp. Uh, I followed David around for about a year. Basically, he took me underneath his wing. I did everything for him that he asked of me. I basically went to his home office in between classes, after bartending. Basically, any day I had free time, I was there helping him out with his real estate investments, meeting with him with contractors, helping him fill out paperwork, you know, putting out signs around town. Whatever dirty work needed done, I was there to do it. That first year, I learned so much and bought my first property you know, at the age of 20. I haven't looked back since. That's all I've done. So I bought my first single family investment. It was a really run down, rough property at the age of 20 and continued buying low end rough properties for a couple of years. Moved down to Florida from Pennsylvania in 2002 and focused on real estate full-time. Built a pretty large portfolio in a, in a short number of years. Uh, opened up a pretty successful mortgage company as well simultaneously. Owned uh, hundreds of single-family homes in my portfolio. Acquired uh, just shy of 500 apartment units. And it was doing really, really well. And that will lead us up to 2008, which we all kind of know what happened at that point in time. 2008, we suffered pretty bad down here in Florida, as a lot of other people did across the country. But that's kind of the first half of my real estate adventure, Duray. I could speak on for 10, 15 more minutes about that story. But I'm sure you might have some questions. So I'll stop there halfway through before we continue on. But that's kind of the first half of my journey and how I got introduced to real estate. Your first investment, was it an investment property or was it a flip? It actually was not a flip. My mentor, David, he focused on buy and hold. That was his strategy. And so honestly, that became my strategy because I didn't really know a different strategy. I mean, I went to this fix and flip boot camp, but you know, he really talked about long-term cash flow and long-term wealth. You know, you want to be able to live on your cash flow, your positive income from your rental properties. And so that's kind of always what I focused on. Now I have fixed and flip properties throughout the years, many of them, but most of the time when we're going into an investment, it was always to buy and to, you know, create some kind of cash flow between the, you know, the, the debt that's in place, the monthly mortgage payment and the amount that it could be rented for on a monthly basis. So that was always my focus. It's still my focus today, but we definitely have fixed and flip properties and wholesale properties as well. Did you understand all of that back then? I mean, you're a young 19, 20 year old kid and he's talking about cash flow and you're looking to make major money probably. I mean, you're a community college and it seems like you didn't really have a direction as far as what you wanted to do and yeah. on this this gold mine. But at the same time, most people are looking for that instantaneous cash, whereas, you know, building up cash flowing assets is an investment strategy that I think is the best investment strategy. But starting out, it's hard to kind of see that as the golden ticket. So what was your thought process back then? That's a great question. You know, it's funny because he taught me cash flow and and I had really low overhead at that point in my life. I mean, my goal, my initial goal was to make $2,000 a month in passive cash flow. Like that, that's where I need to hit. And that was like, great. I mean, I own my car free and clear. I'd make good money tending bar three days a week. I mean, really good money for, at that age. And so I had saved up, you know, a good bit of money, good bit of cash reserves. And so basically my goal was to get that 2000 mark and I could replace the income that I was making, literally working, you know, the, what are 15, 20 hours a week as a bartender. And that was like kind of the comfort zone I was going for. But I quickly realized that that was going to take some time, even to get to $2,000, that was going to take some time that I would have been out of cash that, you know, that, that was needed for down payments on, on more properties. And so I actually ended up selling that very first property. I believe it was before I bought my fourth property that I was planning on holding. So I started then 
actually flipping properties, not with really the intent of moving to that business model, but more so because I needed more cash. I realized that in order to really build the nest egg and, and the, the cash stream that I needed, I needed more like real liquid cash that I could spend on more properties, larger properties, and, and create more volume out of those properties. So I did sell some of those initial investments. It wasn't really the original plan, but that did end up happening. And moving forward in my business, I always kept that as an option. And that's what I said. You know, we normally would buy with the intent of holding, but there was definitely points in time where we sell properties or we would just buy with the intent of fixing and then flipping immediately for a profit or even just wholesaling because you need the capital, right? You need the working capital to uh, keep projecting your business forward. Definitely. So how did you fund those first three deals? Yeah, well, private money was the the first, actually the first like six deals I did in Pennsylvania was private money. And it was a, a private lender that uh, David had introduced me to. It was a relationship he had established over the years. It was still based on my credit. It wasn't like a straight hard money type of loan that was like, you know, no credit based, just asset based. So there was a credit decision there. I did have good credit at the time. I didn't have much credit, but I had good credit and I had cash. So I did have the cash, you know, for the downstroke. It wasn't an expensive house. I mean, we're talking, I I believe I paid $18,000 for it. So a very low income row home in, in downtown Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. But I used my own money and I used the private lender to fund it. Got you. And the education that, that comes with that, I, I could just imagine, you know, you know are you, were you analyzing deals back then? Did David teach you what to do, when, how to look for deals? He what did. Analysis? Yeah, because remember, I was helping him for a year uh, in his own business. And so he was still acquiring properties in that year that we were working together and I had not yet bought a property. So I was getting to see him. I was watching him, you know, literally walking in his footsteps, looking at different deals that he was analyzing, what he liked about them, what he didn't like, you know, different parts of town, which parts of town you should stay away from, um, how he, you know, factored in renovation costs. And, and so, yeah, I got to see it literally through his eyes for an entire year. And believe me, I didn't know everything after that year at all. I mean, I still had a ton of questions and he was still there to, you know, lean on. And, and I surely did lean on him for a period of time before I decided that, hey, I, I kind of got this. Like, I don't necessarily need to be bogging down David anymore. It took me about two full years before I felt like th- that I kind of knew enough that I didn't have to necessarily call him with every single question, you know, five or 10 times a day. uh, Yeah. So I got to kind of view this business through his eyes for for a long period of time before I really stepped out on my own. Okay. So your primary educational well per se came from David. Were there any books, yeah. any training courses? That Absolutely. Came? I mean, I, that was the first boot camp I had ever attended and I didn't even know that type of thing existed. But as soon as I went to that first boot camp, you know, number one, David had a pretty extensive library of books. And then also back then it was uh, audio cassette tapes. So I'm kind of dating myself a little bit, but <laughs> he had a whole library of, you know, I, I can't even think of some of the names back then. I mean, Carlton Sheets is obviously one of them. Ron Legrand was a big one. I can't even think of some of the other names, but I mean, he, I literally went through his entire library and then there happened to be a real estate investment club. It was pretty far away in Philadelphia, but they had like a book sharing program and to where they had all their audio books and things like that, that you could literally check out like you would at a library. And so I spent hours upon hours and whenever I was driving, this is before iPods and, you know, iTunes and podcasts and all that, but I spent hours and hours driving. I always had a cassette tape in. So I became a student of that's a point in my life where education actually made sense. And I was excited to learn prior to that. I didn't have any interest in learning whatsoever. <laughs> that makes that makes total complete sense. That's amazing. So this $2,000 a month goal, when were you finally able to hit that? That was your first initial goal. When, when were you able to hit that? And from there, what did that prompt you to do? Did you, did you set your, your, your sites higher or, or did you kind of maintain that for a while? 
It's funny. I never, I lived in Pennsylvania for two years prior to moving to Florida. In Pennsylvania, I ended up doing six total deals. And I never actually hit that $2,000 a month mark while, you know, in the first couple of years of my business, I ended up selling some property. You know, so I ended up having a good amount of cash, but I knew that at, I didn't want to stay in Pennsylvania. So my goal was to move. Like I had changed kind of my mind. I didn't want to stay around. I wanted to move somewhere where it was a little bit more progressive, a lot more going on. And I liked the beach. So I moved to Florida in 2002. And I hit my, that first year in Florida, I did hit that 2000 goal. In fact, I exceeded that 2000 goal and greatly exceeded in the first couple of years of living down here. So that $2,000 a month goal turned into $4,000 a month and it turned into $8,000 a month. And I exceeded that for a period of time as well by investing in single family homes. So I didn't do it the first couple of years. I didn't really reach the goal when I'd first set it. Like I kind of said, hey, the first two years, I want to get to $2,000 a month. As I'd mentioned, I ran out of capital. It was kind of a weird situation. I had to start selling a few things. And then I just decided that my business model needed to change slightly. But I also wanted to change my surroundings and move to Florida at that point in time. So, And that's when things really took off for me. I moved to Florida in 2002. And that's when things really, really ramped up and kind of started going gangbusters. So let's talk about that. We're progressing further down here before the millions journey. Let's talk about 2002 and let's go up to 2008 and figure out, you know, what the ramp up and figure out the maybe even the ramp down and what happened during the crash. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, we just uh, continued buying. I got to know everyone in the market down here that I could that was actively investing in real estate. You know, the doers, the ones that are actually doing deals, not the ones that just go to the investment club meetings and show up every week and never do a deal. But the people that are actually buying the properties. And uh, I bought my first property down here in Florida within six months of living here. Also started a mortgage company simultaneously at the same time and uh, built up a portfolio of 121 single family properties between 2002 to 2007. At that same point, a couple years into that journey, we started buying apartment buildings with a few partners and acquired just under 500 apartment doors as well in between 2002 and 2007. 2007, I can't recall if we bought any. I don't, I don't believe we bought any properties at all that year. If anything, we sold a good number of them only because things started slowing down here. I mean, things really started, you knew something was happening. There was a down curve that started occurring. And in come 2008, it got pretty messy. And so what really happened down here, you know, we were called ground zero for the crash. You know, I think Las Vegas was another area. Uh, Arizona was another state, California. There were a couple of states that took the brunt of uh, the 2008 crash or the subprime mortgage crisis. And Florida has always been a, a cyclical state. I mean, it's like a roller coaster ride. Even today, like today, the values are going crazy again. It's always up. It's always down. When it goes up, it goes high. When it comes down, it crashes really hard. And so, what happened back then was we were always buying things with very low leverage. We always had a very good buffer. We, we, we were very strict with not paying more than 65 cents in the dollar. We'd always take very safe debt out on property. And we're always buying things for what we thought was you know, a good margin as far as cash flow is concerned. And what happened down here is a couple things. It's kind of like a, a couple different ingredients that really created the disaster that occurred, at least in our own business. Okay. This doesn't necessarily pertain to everyone and that was in real estate, but to us, there was a lot of speculative homes being built. I'm talking thousands of rooftops. There's parts of Florida just south of Tampa Bay that, you know, down in the south of Sarasota area, in between Sarasota and Fort Myers on the West Coast here, that there were just, there's thousands of thousands of acres of land, of, of raw land, and spec builders were building rooftops. I mean, just by the droves. I mean, as many as they could build at one time, they were building them. I mean, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there were that many people moving into Florida at that point in time. And so what really happened to us that really just killed our business very, very quickly was 
not only did value start going down very quickly, and we were trying to sell off as fast as we could, and we really couldn't beat the curve. Like the curve, as far as value depreciating, was was beating out how fast we could sell our portfolio off. But what really put the nail in the coffin for us was. A lot of these spec builders, as soon as the market started really taking a turn for the worse and, and they realized they weren't selling these homes, they started renting these brand new homes out. Three bedroom, two bath, two car garage homes for basically, you know, either not much more or sometimes the same or sometimes less than what we were renting out homes that were 15, 20, 25 year old homes and that were smaller, right? Three bedroom, one bath homes. And so we had a, not a mass exodus, that's probably the wrong terminology, but we saw a very large vacancy occurrence happen in a very short period of time, a number of months, because people were literally moving into these new homes because they could for the same price as what they were renting from us. So that was a very challenging situation for us. Not only did we have no equity left in a lot of our properties because the values decreased so greatly, but now we weren't cash flowing anymore. In fact, uh, it got to a point where we were negative cash flowing. So we have no value equity's gone for the most part. Even properties that we had 30, 40% equity in, it was gone. There were certain markets down here where 60% of the value was gone in a matter of eight months. And uh, now we were writing checks each and every month to basically pay our debt service. It was an ugly situation, incredibly ugly situation. We really didn't know when it was going to end. So, you know, it came to the point where we were literally going broke. I mean, it was like a slow death and there was nothing that could be in because no one was buying at that point in time. No one was buying in the first year of all this happening. I mean, it was ugly. No one knew where the bottom was going to be. And so we basically ended up defaulting on the single family homes was what really killed us. Our apartments actually survived this crash, but the single family homes are the ones that really were the nail in the coffin for us. And so we ended up defaulting on about 90% of our portfolio. We couldn't hold on to it. It was impossible. Wow. This is a crazy time in your life. And you know, you're a successful real estate investor and you have all these things going. It sounds like your apartments, you know, they, they kind of, they were okay. They were okay during, during the crash, but your single home portfolio wasn't 90% of, of your property defaulted. That's crazy. How did you come out of that? Yeah, it took a number of years. It was a really challenging situation. Uh, had, had bad credit, had a lot of judgments. I mean, just, it was, it was as ugly as you can imagine it being. We tried to do workouts with uh, as many lenders as we could. Uh, at that point, when this was first all happening, when 2008 was kind of unraveling, a lot of lenders weren't willing to do workouts. It wasn't until like a year or two after the fact when they realized like, wow, this is a bigger event than what anyone thought. Because a lot of lenders didn't even have workout departments back then. Like it didn't even exist. It wasn't even a division of their company. And so a lot of the banks initially weren't willing to work with us. There were a few smaller local banks that, that were willing to work with us and adjust terms and things like that to help us along. But a majority of them did not. And so uh, we ended up defaulting and it was a very ugly situation. We had attorneys involved and I mean, there was lawsuits after lawsuit and we worked through it. I mean, we just, we slowly worked through it as, as best as we could. Uh, it took a number of years to, a number of years, I mean, literally, you know, five, actually what, that was 2008. So probably about six, seven years to truly fully recover. And I'm talking like credit wise, credit wise. And uh, it, it sticks with you. A lot, a lot of these loans were personal, uh, full recourse, personal guaranteed loans. And we never did bankruptcy, never filed bankruptcy or anything like that. So we, we did our best to pay back all the debts that were, that were owed. We did a lot of short sales, did a lot of uh, discounted payoffs on, uh, on judgments and liens. And so, but it, it was ugly. I, I can't tell you that how, how we work our way out of it, time. Time yeah. was it and trying to stay positive and trying to stay focused on that. Hey, like I'm not the only one this happened to. And I think that's one thing that really helped carry me through it is that I had a lot of friends that were down here in this market that. I feel had been, had been in the business even longer than I, you know, that I could say were smarter than even myself. And they'd been through multiple different crashes and they didn't even see this coming as fast as it came. So there were lots of people that were hurt way worse than I, I was, and, uh, and they were working through it. So 
I didn't, I wasn't saying, oh, poor me. I was saying, oh gosh, like this is ugly and this is a bad situation. A lot of other people are going through it and we'll just, we'll have to work through it. You know, we'll have to just keep pushing forward, but it was not fun. I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) So what was your lifestyle like before the crash and how did you have to adjust your lifestyle after the crash? I've always been somewhat uh, concerned with how I live. I mean, I did lose my home. I lost my my primary residence to foreclosure as well. I wouldn't say that I was incredibly over leveraged, but I couldn't afford a mortgage payment because uh, I literally went from making you know twenty thousand dollars a month of pa- you know passive income from our investments to zero, you know, to or to negative. And um, I couldn't afford my primary residence. I had also lost all of its value, and so in my lifestyle was always fairly conservative. I never drove $100,000 cars or anything like that. I don't have flashy watches. It's just not my style. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not me. So the thing that really had a change in my lifestyle was trying to figure out how to put a roof over my head. And that was it. I mean, that it went from having a roof over my head that I was very happy with and a, uh, a lifestyle of having money and having credit, being able to go get a bank loan, go get a mortgage, go get a car and not be questioned about it. It changed from that to literally living off a debit card living with cash, not having any credit cards left over, not having any credit, not being able to get credit whatsoever, and literally not knowing when my home is going to be taken away from me because it was in foreclosure. So it's just, I, you, you kind of figure it out. You know, in fact, it, there, there's some positive things that came out of it, in all honesty. You know, one of the big things that I feel that made me stronger through this period of time was the credit thing. You know, strange, strange enough is that we all rely so much on credit, like credit, like being able to go to a bank, get a mortgage, get a loan. I mean, everyone, just, even, even getting cable nowadays or getting gas turned on your house or anything at all, like they pull your credit. It's crazy. Like you're judged if you want to get electric turned on your house based on your credit score. And so it, it was interesting to go through that time trying to explain why my credit sucks so bad, why I had so many judgments and so many derogatory uh, payments on there. And, uh, but it, it taught me how to be a lot more budget conscious and to live with cash and not rely on credit. And literally to this day, that's kind of funny because I, I can get loans nowadays. We have mortgages and things like that, but I'm going to cut my vehicles free and clear nowadays. Like I don't get auto loans or anything like that. It really changed how I think about those types of things. So I'm very low as far as leverage concern, other than on my properties, which we still have low leverage on, but personal debt, I just, I, I never carry any whatsoever. And so I think that's one positive that came out of it. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just, it's taught me how to live a little bit differently. I love that. I love that. I love that. So let's transition a little bit further, Kevin. Let's, let's talk about how you got into mobile park investing because I'm an apartment investor and mm-hmm. I know, and many apartment investors know, or we believe because of what we hear that mobile park investing is, is the way to go. It's the greatest of all time. It's, it's what can <laughs> any recession. It's the, it's the golden child. So <laughs> I mean, even knowing that, I know that, you know, I'm super laser focused on what I do. So I would always, you know, kind of stay in my lane, at least for now. But, you know, knowing that there are listeners out there looking to get into into uh, real estate or, or, or diversifying their portfolio and, and trying to figure out how to get into real estate and what real estate to get into. I always like to tell them, hey, like apartments are, you know, next to none, one of the best asset classes. Mm-hmm. What I do here is that mobile parks are, you know, the top tier. So maybe talk about how you started getting into that and what the advantages yeah. are. Yeah. And I'll first off by saying that, you know what, you can make money a thousand and one different ways or probably more than that in real estate. So I don't necessarily think that there's one better asset class than the next. I mean, I've made money in apartments. I've made money in single family homes. I've done other types of commercial real estate. Today, what we focus on are mobile home parks and I like them a lot and I think they are the best, but that's just my opinion, right? Because I I really think that you can do really well and whatever you choose, like whatever path you choose in real estate, as long as you focus on it, 
and you stick with it and you master it, right? Like you like apartments and your focus is stuck on apartments and that's fine. I mean, you can do quite well. In fact, I can point to many people that do way better in apartments than some people that I know that are in the mobile home park space, right? So, and vice versa. And so I, I would just go to say that pick whatever you have the most passion for. And it's kind of goofy to say that we have a passion for mobile home parks, but we kind of do. It's kind of, it's a fun business and it's also lucrative. And so pick what you enjoy the most or what you think you're going to enjoy the most and just become the master at it. And you can make money at anything, right? Whatever path you choose, you can make really good money at. So, but how I got introduced to mobile home parks is, um, just like everything in my life is everything kind of happens by accident. But I think that's the importance of getting out and talking to people like, like DeRay, like you and I talking right now, just getting out and meeting people and networking because you never know who you're going to meet. And so, just like with David, I met David, David got me into real estate. I don't know what I'd be doing today if it wasn't for meeting David at that point in my life. And so always be open, always have your arms open for meeting, you know, new people being introduced to new people. 2008 to 2010, I wouldn't say that stuck my head in the sand, but it was rough. I didn't have any money. I was, I was really broke. In fact, I met who my wife, my wife today, I met her right when all this was happening, which is kind of a crazy story. So she met me pretty much at my work or as I was going nosedived into my worst and I let her know what was happening and she stuck with me through it. So she's an incredible woman, you know, not just because of that for many other reasons as well, but uh, she stuck with me through those really tough times. But I didn't really want to think about real estate for two years. I mean, I didn't know for how long, but I mean, for the, for the two years following that crash, I really wanted to focus on some other passions I had just because I wanted to get my mind off of what was happening. And so I'm really into health and fitness. I'm a huge runner, or at least I was a, a big runner. Uh, I'm a big cyclist as well. I do lots of events. Uh, my wife and I used to do a lot of races together. And so we were really into that scene. We really enjoyed meeting people, you know, kind of through different running clubs and events and races and such. And so we had a crazy idea one year doing a Chicago marathon, which was a basically a, a custom clothing business geared towards runners and cyclists. And so I was like, you know what, that crazy idea, I'm going to give it a shot because at least you'll keep me close to this, this industry that I love so much. And so we started the printing company and grew that business for a number of years and just literally exited out about two years ago, but it was a successful uh, printing company that made specialized clothing, custom clothing for runners and cyclists, like dry fit clothing that were custom for different teams and charities and things like that. And at the same time, I started another company simultaneously to that, which has become the largest social running club throughout the country and still in existence today. So, I mean, th those things got my mind off of it. And it kind of leads into how I f figured out mobile home parks or how I found out about mobile home parks. So anyway, two years, didn't do anything with real estate. 2010, middle of it, some, somewhere along the way, I knew I was like, oh, gosh, I, I got it. This is fun but I need to do something bigger. I'm missing real estate in a big way. Started diving back in and talking to everyone that I could get my hands on that was in the apartment space. I knew I wanted to buy multifamily moving forward. I didn't want to take the time, the energy to buy single family homes. Plus it's a very inefficient model when you compare it to apartment buildings. Okay. So I knew moving forward that single family was not for me. Multifamily was going to be all my focus. I wanted to buy large apartment complexes. And so it took about eight months to a year and met everyone I could because the landscape had changed at that point. You know, lending was different. There was still a lot of distress in the marketplace. Uh, lots of defaults still occurring as a result of 2008 that were kind of carrying forward. And so during this, this discovery period uh, is what I'll call it, I was introduced to a gentleman by the name of Randy. Randy was, had been in the manufactured housing space or mobile home park space in the finance side for 30 years. 
Uh, he had landed on some very large properties. I had transacted, I think probably, I don't know, half a billion dollars worth of financial transactions in the mobile home park space uh, throughout his career in the finance side. But then after he retired, when I met him, he had been retired for five or six years. He started buying mobile home parks here in Florida. And I got talking to him about this business. I didn't have any interest in it when I went into this lunch meeting. And I left the lunch meeting after like two hours saying, I'm going to focus one year on buying a park and seeing if it's something that I like better than apartment buildings. And that's what I did. I left that lunch meeting. It took me about a year and a half to buy the first community and purchase that first park and haven't looked back since. And so that was back, it was just nearing 2012 when we bought our first property and have been focused on this niche ever since then. So for the listeners who are not quite sure, because some people, it may be a little bit hazy to them. What is a mobile home park? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a plot of land that has, I mean, the, the technical term for it is uh, any plot of land that has uh, two or more mobile home structures on them. I mean, that, that technically is a mobile home park, but to us, a mobile home park is, uh, you know, like the smallest community we own today is 35 spaces, meaning there's 35, you know, residential mobile homes in this community. And the largest one that we own to date is uh, 131 lots. And so it is just a, uh, it's a community uh, just like an apartment complex, but we like to call it, it's like almost like a horizontal apartment complex. So instead of going up, you go wide and you go deep and everyone's got their own individual homes and they essentially just rent their lots from us. And so we own the dirt, we own the land, we own the infrastructure and the residents own their own homes or mobile homes. And then they rent the lot from us on a monthly basis. Okay. Okay. Definitely. You went into the mobile home park space and you looks like you left your printing company and you, you kind of you kind of started focusing back on real estate. Moving towards your progression now and what you're doing now, what's your overall goal and and about the lifestyle design that you've created for yourself by doing exactly what you do? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I can tell you that I'm I'm a person that needs focus. I know that uh, just like a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, there's that shiny object syndrome that all of us possess that we have to uh, keep you know in a cage in the back of our mind and not let our minds wander too much into other areas. So with me. Mobile home parks are my main focus. That is my main core business. We own 13 communities today and are, you know, currently raising capital, buying more, actively buying more. So, in addition to our mobile home park business, like our investment business, we also have an educational platform that we created in the past year called the Mobile Home Park Academy. So, that is also another venture that I'm actively involved in. That's where we actually essentially teach all the systems and processes that we've developed over the years that we've perfected. We teach others how to get into this niche and how to do it successfully. So, those are the main two. I don't have any other businesses to date. I do own some other miscellaneous real estate other than mobile home parks, but I wouldn't say that I'm actively buying other types of real estate. So real estate is it, man. Like that is my core business. I don't have time to focus on any other business at this point in my life. So that definitely, definitely makes sense. <laughs> so, so you personally, Kevin, what's your overarching goal? What's your lifestyle goal? What's your vision? What are you trying to achieve? I mean, you've, you've definitely achieved financial independence and financial freedom years ago. So what, what is the new goal? What, what are you aiming for? It's interesting that you ask that because I, again, I still live a very conservative life, and uh, I don't want to say I don't have financial goals because I do, but you know, more so, our goal in this industry, at least our our five year goal that we've set as a company recently, and it's more based on number of units. We know that there's a lot of opportunity in this space over the coming years. There's lots of aging owners that are aging out of these investments. It's, it's a very unique asset class. It's the only asset class that has a diminishing supply, meaning like they're not building anymore and they're actually being torn down faster or shut down faster than they're being built. There's no other asset class like that that exists. So the barriers to entry are incredibly high. And there's a lots of opportunities still for us to buy over the next five to 10 years. And so we would like to acquire 10,000 lots 
within the next five years uh, in our portfolio. Currently, we're over a thousand, and so we've got a ways to go. But we think that it's a very achievable goal. Uh, as far as financially, you know, more so than money in my pocket. I really enjoy building companies that that our employees, you know, really feel like they're a part of, like that a family atmosphere that they can truly have a passion for working and, and helping us reach our goals. So that's important to me is to grow a company that really caters to those that, that want to be in something that they can feel they can grab a hold of. That's not a huge corporation. They can feel like they, they were a part of helping grow to something bigger and better. And, you know, honestly, DeRay, one of the things I kind of joked beginning about you know, it's kind of goofy when I say that we have a passion for mobile home parks. Well, the thing that's really special about mobile home parks, and, and this is the God's honest truth, there's a huge shortage of affordable housing in this country. Okay, we can all agree on that. And, and our government's not building it fast enough. Okay, like we're not meeting anywhere near the demand that's out there, you know, as far as new supply on the marketplace. And mobile home parks really fit that, that void in a great way. And so, it's a very rewarding part of this business to take communities like our, our typical purchase is a community that's in, it's got some distress to it, sometimes more than others. Uh, we, we've definitely taken over some very distressed communities uh, that have been challenged for a number of years, some not so much, but it's very rewarding for, for me to go in and, and take something over that hasn't been run properly for a long time and turn it back into what it used to be 10, 20, 30 years ago, a place that the, uh, the community is proud of, a place that offers affordable housing for those that never will be able to afford a stick boat home, but also don't want to live in an apartment complex. They, they want to have the best for their children. They want to be in a good school district. They want to have a little yard to play in. They want to have a place of their own, but they just, they make $15 an hour. They can't afford a stick boat home in a neighborhood. And they also don't want to live in an apartment that's got neighbors above, below, and both sides, right? And so, it's very rewarding for us to basically go into a community and, and become a positive part, a positive component of that, that, uh, that community and give a nice place for families to live and to thrive. So 10,000 is kind of the number of lots that we want to own. And I think that will be not, it will be financially fulfilling, but it will be more internally fulfilling as far as like how many families we can truly impact. So like, I don't have a financial goal, but I definitely have a goal of helping, you know, 10,000 say families, you know, meet their goals. So I think that's the more important part. Definitely. I love that so much. So before we round out this round, walk us through a typical day of yours. I know you have a, a couple podcasts, you're coaching and you have, you have your, your mobile home park. So what do you, what do you do on a typical day from, you know, the time you wake up to maybe the time that you lay your head on your pillow? Yeah, well, I've got two young kids and a wife too. So I've got a one-year-old and a four-year-old. So my household, it's pretty hectic and I'm very, I'm very into life-work balance. And so I definitely, I, I spend as much time with my family as possible, but we do have an office that's about 15 minutes away from my home. I've also got a home office, uh, which I'm actually uh, speaking to you at with today. I'm out of my home office. And so uh, typically four days a week, I go into my main office about 9am. You know, I, I get up in the morning, I, I exercise before the family gets up. So like, which is kind of, uh, it's not fun. I'm a morning guy, but I'm not that much of a morning guy. But so I, this morning I woke up at 4.15 AM and went and rode my bike for, you know, two and a half hours, came home, made the family breakfast, got everyone ready for school, you know, for their, you know, the sitters and nanny and all that and left and took the kids and dropped them off. And actually I came back to my house today, but normally I would go to my main office and, uh, and work there till about five and then come home and have family time. I'm, I'm one of those people that I don't like being interrupted unless it's in, unless it's an emergency. I don't like being interrupted after 5 p.m. from about 5 till about 8 p.m. That's like when my children are still awake. You know, it's kind of family time. It's dedicated towards my wife and my kids. And I normally jump back on my computer, you know, nine o'clock or something like that. I'll get back on my laptop and 
and uh, hammer out another hour and a half or so of emails, just kind of you know prepping for the next day. But I think one of the, the very important parts of my weekly routine, I think this is probably the most important of the entire week and what keeps me kind of on track is Sunday evening after I put the kids to bed and after my wife, my t- wife typically goes to bed a little bit earlier than me, on, at least on Sunday evening. And I stay up till about about 11 or so. And I kind of plan out my week. I put basically all my to-dos. I don't do a to-do list, but I more so put it on my calendar. I use Google calendars. And I basically, anything that I have to do that week that's prioritized, it gets an actual time slot. Like it gets a dedicated time associated with it. And I map out my entire week that way of what I have to do, what I have to get done, but it's all got a dedicated time that's associated with it. So I do that on Sunday evenings. Lifestyle Design Acceleration Hacks. What is your favorite Before the Millions book? You know, I'm going to say that I don't have a favorite book because I read a ton of books. So I'm going to give you one that just kind of sticks out in my mind. And I'm, look, I'm actually looking at my bookshelf now. And so one that, uh, that I've read a few different times that I think is a great read and it's a short read, it's, it's pretty uh, easy to digest, is uh, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. And that is, was written by Vern uh, Harnish, H-A-R-N-I-S-H. And what, what is that? What would, just a quick 20 seconds. Yeah, I mean, so, so basically the, all the principles that Rockefeller built his business and his life and his success by, I mean, it just, it breaks them down point by point and teaches how to apply them to your business. I mean, it's like the simple summary of the book itself. And it's a very short read. It's maybe 200 pages at the most. It's all very actionable type material that literally is, allows you to model one of the most successful entrepreneurs you know, in, in US history. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or a tool. I'm really about paying attention to my credit nowadays because I had really poor credit for a long period of time. And so um, <laughs> I don't know karma. if it really helps me. Yeah, credit karma is <laughs> awesome, man. I love it. And I wouldn't say that it really helped. You know, the one thing that I learned, uh, and I didn't know this uh, a couple of years back, is uh, how important it was to time, to pay attention to when your different credit cards report to the credit bureaus each and every month, making sure that you've got as low a balance as possible. So, you know, I pay all my bills on time, but a lot of people just pay all their bills at the same time each month, even though some of them might report at different points of the month to their credit bureau. And the more important thing to do is make sure that if you're going to keep using that card, make sure that you literally pay that thing down to zero, you know, the day or two before before they're about to report to the bureau so that you've got either a zero balance or you know as low as possible of a balance and uh, you, you'll see that your credit score fluctuates greatly you know the more balanced or more usable uh, credit that you have of your line and so if you got everything down to zero you're going to find your credit score jumps in a great way so the credit karma helps keep me on track in a big way i love it i love that there's a great tip for our community what do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed Man, I love spending time with my family. I know I keep talking about the family, but I love uh, being able to uh, you know to take my kids in the morning, to pick them up in the evenings, you know, to go out and I just taught my my four year old how to ride a bike the other day without training wheels. You know, just fun stuff Amazing. like that, man. I mean, obviously, I'm busy, so I'm not going to act as though like there's not points in time that work takes me away from spending with them. And you know, there's not points where you know I've got to go travel for three, four days to you know some property that we're buying and. And I honestly don't, at this point in my life, I don't enjoy that part of my business so much anymore. Back then, you know, back before having kids, I loved going, I, I love, still love going to the property, but I just don't like being away from my children. So, you know, this business allows me the flexibility to spend time with my family. You know, I don't obviously have, only have two weeks vacation here. We want to go on more vacations than that. We can, you know, I have to really, you know, get approval from a boss or from an executive or, you know, realize that, hey, I only got one vacation day left for this year. I guess I can't go anywhere for the next four months. So uh, that flexibility is there, but obviously there's other parts of this, this business that that take a lot of time and have me away on weekends sometimes things like that so it's i wouldn't say that it's all 
you know, it, it's all just, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but there's challenges that come with being an entrepreneur that it, it's, it's not just, hey, you get to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. Yes, you can, but there's still a lot of work involved in it and time commitment as well. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? You know, I think just the, the focus part is so important and knowing that you need to commit, like I said, you can, you can make money a thousand and one different ways in real estate, but you got to commit to focusing on, on one thing, at least so you get really good at it and you start making money, but you also got to commit to a certain amount of time. It doesn't happen overnight. You might get lucky and pull a deal off in the first couple of months, but give yourself a dedicated, like I say a year, give yourself a year, but work your butt off for that year to focus on that goal and don't, don't lose sight, don't lose track, to stay focused, put the blinders on. I think that that's always been the most important part for me. Whatever venture I'm going to go towards, whether it be real estate or some of these other businesses I've started, just stay focused. Stay focused until you actually have some success. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean money. That could mean, you know, as far as like our running club I started, the, the first 10 running clubs, it took like a year for us to get those first 10 running clubs up and going. But after that, we literally had like 40 in a matter of, uh, you know, another six months. So, but I just, I, I wasn't focusing on revenue at that point in time. I just wanted to get the word out there and get our brand built and, you know, get some kind of foundation established. And it took me a while to do that. People kind of laughed at the idea. They're like, what's this? It was such a new thing. I mean, it wasn't like, there was nothing like it around. And so, but now it's kind of like, it's kind of like a household name. So stick with it. If I wouldn't have stuck with it and I did just, you know, kind of waver it off three or four months in saying, ah, there's not really much here. People aren't really getting this idea. Then it would have never gone anywhere and no one would have ever heard about it. So who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? And I think I already know the answer to this one. Yeah, David, <laughs> David, David's it, man. He was, again, I don't know where I'd be in this, in this world today if it wasn't for meeting him and him coming into my life. So, I mean, I, I owe so much to that man. And uh, I tell him as often as I can uh, that I don't know where I'd be if it wasn't for meeting him. So he was a big part of who I am today. That's amazing. That's amazing. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention on getting to the millions? It's fear, man. And the fear of the unknown. You know, it's, it's uncomfortable getting into situations uh, that, that you're not familiar with. So I, I think people just need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I mean, that really is the most important part of being a successful entrepreneur or a real estate investor. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable and just know that success is more times uncomfortable than it is comfortable. Literally learn how to how to sit comfortably and being un uncomfortable, I think that you, you're far away better in, in your entrepreneurial journey. So that's amazing. Yeah, well, absolutely. Kevin, this has been amazing. Hopefully our audience has gained some insight into your life. I know I have, you know, went, you went from bartending and, and making tons of money <laughs> bartending to buying your first first investment property to the 08 crash and how you were able to come out of that and start a whole new business and a whole new industry, which I think was amazing. And then you started in mobile home parks, which is seems like the greatest of all time. So I hope that our audience was able to take a lot from your story. Thanks for sharing your Before the Million story and guiding us through your lifestyle process. It's amazing. And um, you've been an inspiration to me and hopefully you've been an inspiration to the listeners as well. The listeners kind of want to get to know you a a little bit more uh, learn about in mobile home investing where can they find some of that stuff yeah so they can go listen to the, my two different podcasts uh real estate investing for cash flow which is more geared towards commercial real estate but we you know we interview successful apartment operators mobile home park operators shopping centers anything that has to do with commercial real estate and then i have the mobile home park investing podcast which was all mobile home parks so if they have an interest in that niche then that's the place to definitely start and uh if they want to just reach out to me directly they can you know go to my main website kevinbup.com or just even shoot me an email. My personal email is kevin at kevinbuff.com. So one way or another, they should be able to track me down.